Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. This is Bob McBurney with the second Sergeant Grimshaw story in which Sergeant Grimshaw makes a terrible error of judgment. By way of a clue, the story is called Sergeant Grimshaw and Maisie the Python. She was new to the area. She drove well. Sergeant Grimshaw was happy to be a passenger. Despite that, he felt some discomfort because he was properly aware of the difference in their age and rank, and he knew that his own reputation for grumpiness was common knowledge in the station. She was an attractive young woman, and knowing that it could be a long night, he tried to lighten the tone by finding some common ground. Your name's Rosie, isn't it? Yes, Sarge. And your second name is Clatworthy Sarge, slightly defensively. What a wonderful Yorkshire name. Yes, Sarge. Do you come from Yorkshire? From Cheltenham, Sarge. It was a small but effective blow. Taken aback and unable to let it pass, Sergeant Grimshaw stumbled on. Oh, how come you're up here then? I moved here to be with my girlfriend. "'Jolly good,' said Sergeant Grimshaw, "'and then, aware of how dated and inappropriate that sounded, "'he followed it with, "'Right on.' "'For several minutes there was an awkward silence, "'and then the radio sounded. "'All cars are burglary in progress at Turn Lodge off Castle Street. "'The householder is a Mrs Cavendish. "'She's alone in the house.' We'll take it, we're close, said Sergeant Grimshaw gratefully. They drove up the darkened drive, turning between heavy laurel bushes. How the other half lives, said Rosie surprisingly. As they neared the house, the front door opened, and a small man, almost hidden behind a large flat-screen television, came out. He stopped as they approached. Match of the day's over, Jimmy. "'said Sergeant Grimshaw. "'Oh, it's you, Sergeant,' said Jimmy "'in a sort of disappointed way. "'Where are your brothers, Jimmy?' "'said Sergeant Grimshaw. "'Watching snooker tonight, Sergeant.' "'I'll bet they are. "'Put that television down and get in the car.' "'Shall I cuff him, Sarge?' "'Sergeant Grimshaw looked at Jimmy, "'who shook his head in silent appeal. "'No, he knows the score.' "'Stay there, don't move, don't touch anything.' "'Jimmy nodded and got into the back of the car. "'Shall I stay with him, Sarge?' said Rosie. "'No, he'll be okay. We've done this before. You come with me.' "'Inside the house they were greeted by Mrs Cavendish. "'Despite being shaken by the experience, 
she was doing all that she could to hold things together. It was me who phoned the station. I knew that someone was in the house. I'm on my own this evening. Marcus is out. Is Marcus your husband? No, he's my son. My husband is... He, 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 he's no longer... She couldn't complete the sentence. Sergeant Grimshaw sympathised. Could we sit down for a moment, Mrs Cavendish? We just need a few details. They sat in a small study room close to the kitchen. Someone made a cup of tea, and soon Rosie was listening sympathetically, whilst Mrs Cavendish told and retold her story, indeed her whole life history, whilst apologising and then saying it all over again. Mrs Cavendish was well known in the town, a formidable but kindly figure. She was aware of standards, a woman who valued self-control, even in the most challenging of circumstances. But here, in her own home, the subject of a burglary, she felt quite undone. I've been alone for several years. Marcus lives here, of course, but he's never in. When my husband, she hesitated, when he left, and then suddenly frustration, emotion, suppressed for so long the words tumbled out. I still don't understand. She worked in the chip shop in Littlegate. I should have known fish and chips three times a week, the whole house smelling of fat. Who eats fish and chips three times a week? I should have known. Found in the potato room and him in the round table. Grease on his suit, bits of butter in his waistcoat pocket. And then he left, never even said goodbye. Rosie held her hand and comforted her. Sergeant Grimshaw felt like an intruder. He excused himself on the grounds of needing to check the rest of the house for damage. The house was large. A long, panelled hall led to various reception rooms. Systematically, Sergeant Grimshaw investigated. There was no evidence of disturbance that he could see. The last room he checked had once been a ballroom. For some reason, the light switch was boxed in, and after banging his shins on furniture, he called for Rosie. Have you got your torch? Yes, Sarge, here. Shine it over there. Through the darkness, the torch beam illuminated a large construction made of timber and wire mesh. At least twenty feet long, it ran down the length of the far wall, a door on one side, a room within a room. A sharp intake of breath. Good heavens, what's that? It looks like a cage, Sarge, said Rosie. Think again, Rosie. What do you mean, Sarge? In his mind, burglary all but forgotten, Sergeant Grimshaw was considering the evidence which had led to this moment. The dark, curving drive shrouded by laurel bushes, the large house out of sight of the road, even the boxed-in light switch. A perfect location. The light of discovery shone in his eyes. How obvious everything becomes when seen by a professional. 
That's no cage, Rosie. Look again. Don't rely on imagination. Be logical. See that heat lamp? In my opinion, we are looking at a grow room. We've got a cannabis factory here. The cage, for to all appearances that is what it was, was empty. The floor area was covered with some sort of shredded material and plastic boxes and logs. At one end there was an enclosure, rather like a large box, which might have been a sleeping compartment. That's the heated propagator, said Sergeant Grimshaw. That's where they bring on the little plants, and then they move them out onto the floor. Rosie looked doubtful. I still think it's a cage, Sarge, she said. That's what they want us to think. Shine the torch on me, I'm going in to investigate, said Sergeant Grimshaw. He moved across the room, opened the door, and stepped inside. Maisie, for that was the python's name, was eight years old and nearly fifteen feet long. A creature of the tropics, her routine was normally twelve hours darkness followed by twelve hours light. Despite it being the middle of the night, the torchlight and Sergeant Grimshaw's movements had woken her. It was ten days since her last meal and she was ready to eat. Possibly, she thought, that a chicken awaited her. Slowly and silently, she lifted her head through the round hole in the top of her sleeping box. Then she paused and smelled the air. After a moment, her great body slid quietly up, across and down onto the floor as she moved towards the intruder. Despite her considerable size, only the slightest rustling sound could be heard. Within a few feet, her head met Sergeant Grimshaw's foot. She slid over the top of his instep and coiled herself around his ankle. She hissed softly. Then she rested and waited whilst considering her next move. No one could accuse her of malice. She was probably as unprepared as Sergeant Grimshaw. The shock of that moment would stay with Sergeant Grimshaw for the rest of his life. He stood very still. Only his bowel moved. Rosie shone the torch on him. He tried to speak, but his mouth wouldn't work. Do something was what he wanted to say. Rosie put down the torch. Stay there, she said. I'm going to take a picture. No, no. Yes, Sarge, for evidence. The flash fired from her phone. Maisie trembled slightly and tightened her grip. Normal life ceased to have meaning for Sergeant Grimshaw, as shock and terror in equal parts transfixed him. After what seemed an eternity, Mrs. Cavendish came into the room. 
Oh, my goodness, Sergeant, she said. You've woken Maisie and probably frightened her. Oh, goodness, what will Marcus say? Eventually, by dint of persuasion with half a chicken from the refrigerator, Maisie untwined herself from Sergeant Grimshaw's leg. Wrapped in a borrowed blanket, Sergeant Grimshaw, odorous and pale with shock, was led like a child to the car. Rosie returned to talk to Mrs Cavendish. Maisie was quite small when we bought her. Marcus always loved snakes. She's grown and grown, and we don't know what to do. We could try to give her to a zoo, but she'd miss Marcus terribly. He's all she's ever known. Outside, Sergeant Grimshaw sat in the car, his eyes closed. The radio startled him. Hello, Sergeant Grimshaw, desk here. Some bloke called Jimmy's just walked into the station and handed himself in. He says you left him. He's got a huge telly which he says you need for evidence. Sergeant Grimshaw groaned quietly. Inside the house, Rosie was making sure that Mrs Cavendish was secure for the night. She went round all the ground-floor windows, checking the fastenings, and then stood outside the front door and listened until she was sure that Mrs Cavendish had locked all the locks and bolted all the bolts. Then she joined Sergeant Grimshaw in the car. Putting as much distance as she could between them, she opened the window and took a deep breath. She's as safe as houses now. That place is like Fort Knox. Job done, or words to that effect, were radioed back to the station. Taking Sarge home? Not able to come back in? He's had a shock? He might even need medical attention? Sergeant Grimshaw thought that he heard laughter in her voice, but, in truth, he was beyond caring. Inside the house, Mrs Cavendish was preparing for bed. Since Mr Cavendish's departure... She'd not been a good sleeper. Surrounded by romantic novels, a radio, a television, a laptop and headphones, it was often two or three o'clock in the morning before sleep came. Tonight she was particularly nervous. The burglary and the police visit had been a frightening experience. She sat on the bed as she undressed and thought about everything that had happened. She went through the details again and again. I'm safe now, she thought. I'm safe. Everything is locked. I'll have to get up when Marcus comes back and let him in. But I'm safe. I can stop worrying. I must stop worrying. She walked across to the wardrobe, shaking out her dress as she reached for a coat hanger. The wardrobe rail was tightly packed with clothes. She put her dress over her shoulder as she reached forward with both hands to separate garments and make a space. As she did so, from the darkness at the back of the wardrobe, a man's face stared out at her. Hello, missus, he said as he stepped into the room, to be followed after several minutes of hysterical confusion by a second man. This is my brother. We didn't mean to frighten you. We were hiding from the copper. And then, when things had calmed down, 
and reassurances had almost convinced Mrs. Cavendish that she was not in mortal danger, he asked if she had by any chance seen a third man. It's our other brother, you see, he does the electrical stuff. He must be hiding somewhere. In the police car, Rosie and Sergeant Grimshaw pulled up outside his house. The radio came on again. All cars, all cars, urgent to turn lodge off Castle Street. The occupier, Mrs Cavendish, is locked in the house with two burglars who were hiding in a wardrobe. She says that she's not in danger. They're looking for a third man who they think must be hiding somewhere in the house. Sergeant Grimshaw knows something about this. Are you receiving, Sarge? Turn it off, turn it off. It's bloody Jimmy's bloody brothers, said Sergeant Grimshaw with rare feeling. He closed his eyes and shrank into the blanket. He turned to Rosie. It was almost as if she knew what he was going to say. Don't worry, Sarge, leave it to me. You can count on me for everything. Thank you, Rosie, he said, without sincerity. Thank you for all your support. In his mind, he was thinking, thank you for being so bloody perfect. Thank you for being young and attractive and right about everything. Thank you for locking Mrs. Cavendish inside her own house with two idiots and letting me take the blame. Thank you for witnessing my embarrassment. And then, with a shudder, he thought about Maisie the Python and the photographs. All of these things occupied his mind as he staggered, still wrapped in the blanket, towards the safety of his own front door. Much later, after a bath and a one-sided but comforting conversation with his favourite rabbit, Margaret Thatcher, he lay in bed, curled up in a little ball with the duvet pulled over his head. He wondered if he could retire from the force overnight. Maybe a phone call would do it, preferably through ill health, in order to protect his pension, and particularly to avoid having to go into the office in the morning. His last thought, before sleep took him away to horrible dreams, was of social media and of Rosie's photograph of him with a fifteen-foot python, which would, he knew, provide endless amusement for almost everybody in the police force for weeks to come. Life is so complicated. la di da di da Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words, 
from ELFM. In Our Element, a poet's inquiry into climate change. Episode 9, Consciousness. Inside the cuckoo's call, the ear of spring. Inside the ear of spring, the swaying reed. Inside the swaying reed, the warbler's nest. Inside the warbler's nest, the cuckoo's egg. Inside the cuckoo's egg, the eye of gold. Inside the eye of gold, the tug of the sun. Inside the tug of the sun, the bird's wing. Inside 5,000 miles, the vast Sahara. Inside the vast Sahara, African sun. Inside the African sun, the hunger for young. Inside the hunger for young, earth greening. Inside the earth greening, the heart sun. Inside the heart sap, the cuckoo calling, cuckoo, cuckoo calling over and over, cuckoo, cuckoo calling over and over. That's Joshua Green singing a song he set from one of my poems about the cuckoo and her egg and how, when we look closely, we see everything is nested inside everything else. We are aware because we have consciousness. In the Buddhist classification, this is also an element, allowing us to respond to every stray impression and thought and connect with everything around us. We're in Chittaviveka, which means um, serene heart, your heart. Chitta, very important word in Buddhism because it means heart awareness and that which can be enlightened or awakened. So it's also called Chitta's Forest Monastery because it's um, in Chitta's Hamlet and it's a forest monastery which basically means, um, well it's got a lot of trees in it, but the particular lifestyle we live is called forest monasticism which Still, we try to let people often live in little huts in the woods, try to live as simply as possible. Ajahn Suchito is a senior monk in the Theravadin Buddhist tradition, and we asked him to help us understand the element of consciousness, how what's going on inside affects our view of what's going on outside. big word in Buddhist is practice. We're doers rather than believers. We practice. We practice purifying the heart. <laughs> That's what we do. Buddha means awakened or enlightened. So you're purifying the hearts and as you're doing that, there's an awakening to qualities of peace and truth. 
uh, and profound harmony. Many commentators are acknowledging that the climate crisis is a crisis of consciousness, a crisis of values, a crisis of imagination. In Buddhism, we're not denying the fact that there's a world of form there, but what it says is what you experience is how things strike you. Our consciousness, our consciousness is the receptor of what touches us. We don't experience anything without consciousness. One of the famous images of the Buddha's awakening was he touched the earth. He was in this very alone state in, in a forest, terrific anguished forces circulating through his consciousness, you know, and just touching the earth was like a sense of, hey, I'm grounded. This is the real place. This is here. And that kind of axis of firm resolve within the turbulent world was how his awakening arose from that firm earth. Consciousness is the quality of that which can span experience and comprehend it. Keats's concept of negative capability, learning to exist in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts, speaks to this moment where we find ourselves. Memory and imagination are our building materials, with our minds and our bodies and all the elements we live with and that live in us. The constant flux and symbiosis of inner and outer, local and global, singular, plural, dynamic, reciprocal, everything that makes us present and alive. One of the fundamental problems, particularly the dissonance with the natural world, is that we always conceive ourselves to be somehow separate from it. Because we have a mind and we have external senses. The thinking mind is often relating to sound, sight, such, as if it's separate from it. It therefore exists separate from the rest of the created world. This body is an aspect of, of the natural world. It's a form of nature, like a tree or a beetle or something. Yeah? Now, if you actually just stop the mental interpretations, check those mental interpretations, and directly notice what you experience, you experience a constant ebbing, multi-dimensional tide of impressions mingling and merging, where it's a separation. We create it. Once you stop creating it, you have to look at what brings the greatest sense of harmony within that when it's not demanding, not frightened, not craving, not obstructing, not prejudiced, not interpreting, but just open and calm. And then you find you're living in harmony with the world around you because you are the world around you. What we can learn from Ajahn Suchito's Buddhist understanding overlaps with Deborah McGregor's indigenous worldview about embodiment and interconnectedness. How do you get people to connect to the natural world? Go out and try to be in it, even when you're in a very highly urban environment, because in the Canadian context anyway, it's becoming increasingly urban. Not a lot of people have the privilege of being able to go to like green spaces, but you can still see the moon. There's still aspects of the natural world that you can see and start trying to figure out how you relate to that. There's a lot that we can learn from our own senses and our own connection. And I refer to the natural world in my teaching as also being teachers and sources of knowledge. Like, what are you noticing? 
So both my parents are fluent language speakers. So they think in the Anishinaabe language. And somehow we got into the conversation of, there was no word for boredom. And my dad explained it as, because there's so much going on, if you're paying attention, it's not boring. It's just your capacity to be able to hear and understand and perceive. Before hunting, he could smell the weather. I have no idea how he did that. So there's something that's built in or that you develop that enables you to be able to interpret what it is that you're hearing and listening to. Poet Jory Graham shares her own insights into communication and reciprocity. If we add empathy to consciousness, that feeling that you feel me in order to know that I feel you and that we go back and forth in a kind of hum between each other as we look in each other's faces nonstop, what we are doing is we are mirroring so that we understand each other so much more is communicated in gazing than is communicated in speaking. Well, we do that with animals we love. If we've come to understand the nature of trees or plants, we can feel it in relation to, if you stand under a large tree and you've downloaded the sensation, which we've had to now relearn, but which peoples long before us knew innately that the tree is alive, that it has memory, that forests mourn the loss of large elder trees. They feed each other through root systems. You know, they have compassion. So if we feel all that, it's very hard to automatically, blindly destroy. But what we've done is refuse to feel that. Spending time with the more than human, we might catch a glimpse of a lighter way of being. And there's an intense relief in coming back to ourselves, waking up to what is, so that we know from the ground up what's being asked of us. Dreaming the real. I'm lying down, looking at the colour of sky falling through trees, dreaming the real, tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go, simply exhale, so day could breathe itself in and open without me standing in the way? How could I forget the grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, warm as midday light? Let me practice a patience bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain, all its notes of grey. I want whatever's real to be enough. At least it's a place to begin. And to master the art of loving it, feel it love me back under my skin. Human beings have huge resources. We concentrate on what we alone in this universe can produce. Love, wisdom, and morality. See, we can't make trees, we can't make cows, we can't make weather, we can't make water. If we just did what we alone can do, what our gifts are, and trust that, work on that, 
and the rest of it shape it around it so you turn the thing around instead of we're endless consumer creatures couldn't we be producer creatures producing the true wealth of the human being and bring that forth and say well let's just see if we start with that and maybe we don't need that much we have these original teachings or seven grandfather, seven grandmother teachings about how we're to try to behave. We strive for these ideals in the world and love is one of them, along with humility and courage and generosity. Humans have the capacity to be very destructive, but also highly creative, beautiful thinkers, innovative. We have that capacity and it's actually kind of a choice. In a lot of stories, the humans were the last to be created, but not in the same way Judeo-Christian, like you're top of the food chain, but in Anishinaabek, it's because you were the least knowledgeable and skilled, and you depended upon the others in order to be able to survive. So your job was to be able to learn from your relatives that came before who were here longer. So the trees were here longer, the water's here longer, and they know how to live in this place and were to learn from them. And you would try to take care of because you love your relative. That's my relative. Sometimes I say to myself, you know, if I'm sitting in front of a beautiful ocean view, you're watching the sun go down, the ocean is blue, the sky is gorgeous. And I think to myself of the hundreds of millions, billions of life forms in that water, coextensive with my sitting there on a porch staring out. And then I think to myself, if everything were dead in there and we were still okay up here on the porch, how would I feel in my humanity? Because the view would look the same. The sunset would be just as beautiful. The ocean front property would probably be just as valuable. So what is it that I would feel? And what I would feel is that I had been cut adrift from the only thing I actually belong to in time, in my living time, and that is the rest of creation. I belong with the living things. I don't belong with the columns on the porch. I belong with the creatures in the sea. But if they were all gone, what kind of grief or numbing or silencing of the human soul would occur? And so as an ecological activist, if you can transmit to young people the mystery and the wonder of the absolutely coextensive, more powerful than us life out there. But if you can find a way to take young people and wake them up to it, they might fight, they might sacrifice. This kind of incredible self-obsession human beings are prone to, which makes them that they're the most important creatures on the, on the world. They've got the right to do whatever to anything else. And that, that starts on a very fundamental level with the biosphere, and it begins to come into the society. Cut down a forest, so you can feed your cattle on it. Never mind all the rest of the creatures who live on that, on that forest. Never mind the fact that the forest is actually generating you know, oxygen because we want some more money. You know, a couple of centuries ago, people would go out in ships, British Navy, go out, some merchant kind of ship, sail around a piece of land and say, I'm claiming that for the crown. <laughs> I mean, never mind the people who live there, <laughs> but how can you claim land? 
Who gave it to you? You can't create it. How can you claim it? You can't create an ant. It goes right through our experience. This sense of, I call it the domination exploitation paradigm. And it occurs between people, people dominate and exploit each other, dominate and exploit other creatures. You see, the thing that's almost always when you go to talk about climate change and taking measures against it, the backstop is, oh, it, the economy. We can't, because of the economy, we'll lose jobs. Okay, the economy is more important than the planet. You know, how did that happen? The idea maybe you could change the economy, because <laughs> you can't really change the planet. The economy is a human construction of relationships and trade and currencies, and if humans created it, sure, we could change it. You try and create another planet. <laughs> now, you know, this is economics, so what has it got to do with Buddhism? Well, basically, you could say, if we start practicing things like um, morality, in a very deep morality, you know, let's say let's not be looking at sainthood, but at least make an effort in that direction. <laughs> you know, and start to look at maybe, maybe letting go of things you don't really need. Do we need that much? Perhaps the most radical way to approach the challenge of the climate crisis is much closer to home than we think it is. Too close for comfort. Who among us is ready, like the Buddha, to stay still a while and touch the earth? Nature is rather messy. You know? And uh, really, in order to be with nature, we have to be able to embrace the mess what appears to be a mess, including our own mess, with all its kind of rough edges, and that's called compassion. And so this then of compassion rises out of the recognizing the nature of things to rise and break up, including our own mind states. Autumn. Summer rests its soaring wings. Glories fold under old gold russets and lived out brown. Crab apples crumble like fire. Their ochres fade and darken from ripeness to a breakdown in which whatever seeded like soft grenades lies ready to explode in spring's uprising. Here's our ground among the flight and the falling. And that's a fruition, to know we get wiser only as our triumph, tangles and petty brawling are digested. Compassion's an earth-opened heart, and it wraps around every season. So, home, it's here where birth, growth and falling apart go deep. Trust that and the warmth that blooms, courtesy of your wormed-through loams. Ajahn Suchito, ending the consciousness episode. This series is presented by me, Linda France. It's a Sonderbug production with New Writing North, in association with Newcastle University, supported by the Audio Content Fund and Arts Council England. Cuckoo, cuckoo, calling over and over. Cuckoo, 
You're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. So now we're going to hear two short plays from Script Yorkshire. These were produced a couple of years ago before the pandemic. Uh, We're going to be featuring these two plus three or four more in that original series. And then after that, uh, further into the spring, we're going to be broadcasting a new series um, of Script Yorkshire plays, um, which have been produced much more recently at Chapel FM Art Centre. So, two short plays from writers from Script Yorkshire. Thanks, Tony. Mm. I want to talk to you about something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I want a divorce. (coughs) (coughs) You what? I want a divorce. No, why would you want that? I met someone. Who? Simon. You are joking. I'm not. How could you do this to me, Simon? (coughs) Sorry, Tony. Could you pass the Tommy sauce, please, Carol? Of course I can. Here you go. When did all this kick off, then? On your birthday. At the Rod Stewart concert? At the Rod Stewart concert, yeah. But I was stood right next to you. Simon's got sneaky hands. I do. <laughs> I do have sneaky hands. You sneaky rat. Suppose so. And what does Lisa think of all this? She doesn't mind. Yeah, I don't mind. She was angry at first. Yeah. I was angry at first, but I met someone else. His name's Derek. He works for John Lewis. Oh, very nice. Yeah. You get 10% off DVDs and Blu-rays. So, um, so you're taking then, Lisa? Yeah. Well, that's a shame. You and me backup plan. Sorry. It's a very nice offer, though. Mm. I've started packing your stuff up, Tony. It's in a box by my new telly. What? This is my home now. Well, that's my telly. It's my telly now. It's true, Carol. Yeah. Bloody hell. I have Blue Planet recorded and everything. Look, my Derek can get you a good price on a box set. He gets 10% off DVDs and Blu-rays. Can't I sleep on the sofa? I wouldn't feel very safe with you in the house. Yeah, I suppose you wouldn't. I've got loads of guns and shit. I know you do. I've seen him. Right. Well. Better get going. Need to find myself a home. Lovely to see you, Tony. Uh, I don't like you anymore, Simon. Fair enough. I don't suppose I could have another one of your delicious bangers, Carol. You know, for road. Of course you can. <sighs> Simon, go fetch the man some bangers. Oh, right you are, my love. Oh, you always did love me bangers, Tony. And your taters. And your gravy and your puddings. He did. 
Oh, I used to talk about them all the time. Here you go, attorney. <clears throat> what do you think of Carol's bangers, Simon? They're all right. Just all right? Yeah. You know, they're a bit dry. What are you going to do living with me and me cooking then? Probably get a Chinese. Every night? I suppose so. So, you won't eat me taters, nor me gravy, nor me puddings? Well, if they like your bangers, no, probably not. Oh, I don't want you in my house then. What do you mean? We're through. You've got to be joking. I'm not. I'm sorry I don't like your dry bangers. Uh, steady on. Carol's bangers are cracking. You've got to get your head checked, pal. Do you want me to get me guns? Ah, right then. Will you have me back, Tony? Course, love. I'm sorry about all this. That's all right. Just happy to have you back. I love you. I really do. I love you too, Carol. Ah, oh, that's nice. Will you have me back, Lisa? No. And we Derek now. He gets 10% off DVDs and Blu-rays, you know. Oh, right. Well, I best be off then. All right, pal. Uh, you still coming to the match on Saturday? Oh, yes. Oh, lovely to see you, Simon. Yeah. Sorry it didn't work out, love. Ah, don't worry. You win some, you lose some, eh? <laughs> Ta-da! Ta-da! Right. What's for pudding? Spotted dick. Oh, my favourite. Uh, with proper custard. With proper custard, yeah. Oh, you are the best, Carol. Oh, that's nice. He's a sweetheart, isn't he? Oh, hey, oh. What's Simon doing each year? In Bangers and Mash and Infidelity, Dominic Gately played Tony, Claire Websell played Carol, Johnny Byram played Simon, and Alice Proctor played Lisa. It was written by Jacob Welby, directed by Stephen Eskreet, and is a Radio Acting Days production for Script Yorkshire. Blackout by Cat Rose Martin. Sleeping beauty, you're late. Rise and shine. Here you are. Iron brew. Paracetamol. Get it down, yeah. How are you feeling? Mm. Alright, I think. Why? Because you weren't half steamered last night, mate. Like, mm. I mean, fully steam rolled. Mm. Really? Mate, you were squatted against the ball. I had to have a wee. Said you were doing it doggy style. Oh, done. Where are my pants? AJ, I'm not wearing pants. Mmm, nice. This is a new love for you, mate. No, seriously. Why am I not wearing pants? Dunno, mate. Last I saw you were running up Darley Street chanting, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. <sighs> I told you I'm no good on tequila. Oh, are we going in then? It's quarter to two. We got sociology in 15. Oh, shit. Right. Oh, my feet. That shoe was a murder. I did say. Mm. Oh. 27 missed calls, what the... Mostly from me, I bet. Jade, Jade, you, Jade, you. Oh, my feet. 
Jade. Unknown caller. Huh. No point trying to sell PPI on a night out, yeah. pal. Jade, you, you, Jade, Tyler. Ugh. Boy needs to let it go. Did you text him? I swear, if you text... Oh, call me, hon, at 11.21. Classy. Cringe. Jade, Jade, what's Jade ringing me every second for? What is she with you? Not after about one. Ow! Bastard keys! Oh, double seven four two. Whose number's this? Like I'd know. 452, who's calling me at 452? Ring it! What? The mystery number. Ring oh, right. it. Jeez. Speaker. Who's this? You called me. You called me first. What? I've got a missed call from you at near 5am this morning. Oh, Beyonce. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> you said you were Beyonce. I'm not. I figured. Uh, you gave me your number on the bouncer from Club Ocean. Why did I give you my number? Well, I think you gave half a brat for your number last night, though. Why did you call then? Just said you got home safe. I'm guessing you did. You were you were pretty messy and um What? Those guys older outside the club two of them you were proper chewing their ears off and then they I don't know. You got home safe though, so look Beyonce, I've got to get off. Good luck with new album. What the... Tequila blackouts, mate. Happens to the best of us. Sixteen missed calls from Jade's a bit psycho even for her. Did you see her getting a cab? I didn't see her do anything. One minute we're all together, next both of you were gone. You didn't make sure she got back safe? I was... Oh, fucking boys, you don't think. Hey, Suri, call Jade Peters. Calling Jade Peters on speaker. Welcome. Come on, mate. Hey, Siri. Redial Jade Peters. Calling Jade Peters on speaker. She'll be on her way in now. Welcome. Oh, why is she not picking up? She lives on a phone. Were you the last to see her? No, mate. You were. You said you were getting a shot, then you went to the toilets together. Why do girls always do that? So you didn't see us with those guys outside? No. Lynn's... Come on, please. We're gonna be late. You can catch up with her in class. The bouncer. He said... Linz, come on. She wasn't there. You are? When I was outside. I remember... She, she was there at first. Then, later... Get your hands off him, you filthy little... Hey, you start on her. You start on me and all. Who the bloody hell do you think you are? Little scrubs kicking about with blokes old enough to be your dance. Jade! I'll catch you up! She left me. Does she know he takes his kids to school in that car? And I'd stay well clear of that other one if I were you. Dark. Proper dark, that one. You're probably into all that. Skank. 
WL59DTO. There was a car. Jade. And that woman. Dark. Proper dark. My keys. I dropped them. Then. And then. Woman and bouncer and keys. Dark. Woman. Bouncer. Keys. Woman. Dark. Keys. WL59. Keys. Then. Him. In Blackout, Lindsay was played by Alice Proctor and AJ by Johnny Byram. Dominic Gately played the bouncer and Claire Websell played the woman outside the nightclub. Blackout was written by Cat Rose Martin and directed by Stefan Eskreed. It is a Radio Acting Days production for Script Yorkshire. <laughs> Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. When I'm burning, I'm burning, I'm burning.